And though it doesn't feel like this now, this pandemic will pass. It won't last forever. And one day, hopefully soon, we will be looking back on it, not living through it. What you've seen throughout this crisis is that the, the union working together with the, 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 the money for supporting people through furlough, the, the army working on the, on the testing, moving people around. But now uh, what we want to do is build back better together. The reputation of the Scottish government tainted. The standing of this parliament diminished. A culture of secrets and cover-up that is only growing and it is all taking place on Nicola Sturgeon's watch. There is a reputation here that I think is uh, perhaps disintegrating before our eyes and it's, uh, it's not mine, may, may I say, but Ruth Davison has just gone through there uh, a litany of nonsense. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman. Hello and welcome to The Steamy, the Scotsman's political podcast. Welcome once again, Gina. Gina is with us. And we also have a return of our Westminster correspondent, Alex Brown, who has been on a road trip of sorts, as much as you can do during a global pandemic around Scotland, having come up from London last week. We'll chat to him about his time very shortly. How is everyone doing? Everyone well? Oh, well, Connor. How are you? battling on devastated by the european super league news but that's for a different type of podcast i think <laughs> yes let's not go into that i think that might even be more controversial than than politics a super league with no scottish football clubs in it absolutely and somehow with spurs alex which i know is your team <laughs> you know what i didn't think i could hate them anymore at the moment and then they sign up to this uh they are a disgrace Lots of politics going on in there as well. I know if anyone uh, is following it very closely, you'll, they'll have seen the pressure on Boris Johnson to stop it. But that's not what we're here to talk about today. We'll talk later on about the manifestos that we've seen ahead of this week. Um, Scottish Labour have delayed theirs, I believe, until Thursday due to a planned COVID briefing tomorrow. The Scottish Tories is out today. And we obviously had the SNP, the Greens, and the big event of the week, which was the Scottish Lib Dems last Friday. So we'll talk about that later on. But Alex, you came up to Scotland last week um, for a whole week to do a set of interviews with the party leaders. Take us through what you did with each of them. That is uh, a good question. The thing is, when you say them out loud, it seems more ridiculous. So I, you know, travel across Scotland to interview the leaders I don't want to sit down a formal interview because we're always going to do that anyway. And it's quite boring to watch. I think we needed a break. So, you know, to get to the crux of what's going on with the Greens, you know, they face emerging independence parties like Alba and what happens for them. I thought the best way to explore that with Lorna Slater would be to do some trapeze with her because she loves trapeze. Following on from that, I, uh, I, I went to the dentist with Anna Sawa, the Scottish Labour leader, because he used to be a dentist, and he went through my teeth and had far too much fun spraying me with the water gun. Uh, well, it's not probably not called the water gun. It's probably called, there's probably a technical term for it. But in my head, it's the water gun, uh, and he just kept doing it. And then, <laughs> then at the end, you know, was shouting to, on camera how I'd been a great victim and he was looking for more. <laughs> so if that isn't a way to get elected, I don't know what is. We've got Angus Robertson. Uh, who, I went dog walking with him with his gorgeous uh, two dogs. Uh, and we were at Edinburgh Central. 
uh, and sat in the park. That was lovely. They were so beautiful. You know, you'd ask them for a paw. They'd give, you know, they'd give you a paw and then you, I'd give them a treat. Uh, I mean, they didn't even give me the paw. I'd have given them all the treats anyway. Obviously, there is also, you know, political discussion in it. But my main focus was the dogs were lovely. I went for a run with uh, Willie Rennie, who is frightfully fit. Uh, obviously, he's won competitions as a runner. Um, I, you know, like to, to keep myself, you know, relatively in shape. I go wild swimming. I don't know if I've mentioned. Um, I don't like, don't like to bring it up. But <laughs> he did the interview and then went for a run. And he was so, it was already a very hot day in Cooper. And I had to hold the camera up to film us while we were running. And it, it was just too much. I mean, <laughs> you know, if you, if you like your political interviews with a, a very, very sweaty host being outran by, by a man over 50, you are in for a treat. And then with Paul Sweeney, we, uh, who was running for, for Labour, we went to uh, Springburn Winter Gardens because he is uh, trying to, kind of, I don't say renovate, but restore uh, a botanic gardens. And then with Douglas Ross... Uh, the leader of the Scottish Conservatives, we did uh, some football drills because he is obviously a qualified ref. So he put me through my paces to see if I have what it takes to be uh, a referee. We didn't get round to the offside rule. I'm hoping if we get a second series, we can when we can go inside somewhere and then we can get the salt and pepper out and he can explain <laughs> to me how it all works. Fantastic. And I, the, the series is called On the Holly Road. So if anyone's interested to, to hear what these videos are like, um, here's a clip from... Alex's interview with Scottish Labour leader Anna Sauer. We're now here in Paisley Road West in front of a dental practice to speak with the Scottish Labour leader Anna Sauer, who you may not know was a former dentist himself. Alex, are you next? Uh, yeah, I believe it's me. How are you? Are you okay? All the better seeing you. You look a bit red and nervous. Are you okay? I think it's just sunburn. So you don't need to worry. I'm a pain-free dentist. I never feel any pain. That's very rich. <laughs> When's the last time you were at a dentist? Not to worry you, Alex, yeah. but I've not done dentistry for 10 years. Well, that's not worrying at all. 10 years. So let's see. <laughs> so shall we inflict some pain, especially for the camera? <laughs> are we squishing? <laughs> are we, we squishing? <laughs> so obviously it's great to be back in a dentist. Um, you've taken over labour at quite a difficult time. How long is it going to take you to straighten them out, or will it be like pulling teeth? Uh, you've used all the dental puns on me already. I was <laughs> going to use some of those dental puns back. Uh, look, uh, dentistry and politics, you know, it's two professions that people don't really like much about either one of them. Uh, but I'm hoping we can do some surgery on the uh, Labour Party, get it back on track, uh, railway tracks, races, give it some root and branch uh, treatments, and have it aesthetically pleasing coming the end of this election campaign. I like that you prepared them uh, as well. I did prepare no, well, this, is, this is very good. All of that just came off the hoof, honestly. So, I mean, I, you're not expecting Labour to win this uh, this election, but what, what do you want to achieve? What is it that you think in this Parliament Labour can deliver? Look, obviously, I would, I would love to say to you that Labour's going to win the election in three and a half weeks' time. Uh, and then you would probably say that I need to be in the chair uh, and get a <laughs> of, of a different sort. Um, the, the reality is I've been on the job about five weeks um, and over that course of the time I've said to people I want to get the Labour Party back on the pitch, I want them to be relevant to people's lives again, I want us to come out of this election campaign um, offering a, a better opposition. The first couple of interviews are live already on the Scotsman's website, um, that being the trapeze with Lorna Slater, which I think my favourite image from that is you, Alex, upside down hanging off a 
pretty flimsy looking piece of rope and then at the end you you're doing your best to look impressive by clambering up the the rope and you know in in full like uh, elementary school in the US TV show punishment style yeah well the thing is i felt like the rope thing was quite good and i quite enjoyed doing it but also my technique was really bad so in my head i'm like i'm pulling myself up my arms i'm so strong but actually it should be much easier, but I just couldn't do the leg thing, so I was just making it really hard for myself, like an idiot. <laughs> you know, Lorna was spinning around like some sort of, you know, circus. She was performer, so impressive. Making she me was look bad. So impressive. She is on so that impressive. Of, uh, rope and bit of wood or whatever. What that you know, the trapeze that she was swinging on. I mean, it was really quite phenomenal to watch her, especially when she was upside down and and all sorts. And I think it's absolutely true to say that we have seen a politician in a completely different light than maybe we than maybe we had before <laughs> i i think it was fu- it was fun to do it with her because obviously you know when you see these politicians you see them on the debates or you know at an event talking and other than willie rennie quite often there's not you don't really get a funny photo up or you know see them doing something they're massively into so i think it was good to get her in that setting but also it's just very impressive i mean she didn't start until her 40th birthday she got she got it as a present for her 40th and then just got really into it and started going to like a circus school. Her core muscles must be phenomenal. <laughs> oh, yeah, utterly, utterly remarkable. Her, the instructor was like, you've got even stronger in lockdown. Oh, my God. I mean, she's the way it was like, well, the way that she climbed a rope was like anti-gravity. <laughs> it just looked like she was going, you know, like a normal thing. Like she wasn't quite, quite touching it. Whereas... I was gripping it for dear life, you know, with every fibre of my being, thinking, don't fall on camera. Don't fall. I wasn't so worried about dying. I was more worried about that being filmed, you know? <laughs> if I die, it doesn't matter. If I fall, it's embarrassing, and that's worse. To be honest, was any fall, were any falls cut from the final product? <laughs> no, you know what? If anything, I did some of the trapeze stuff where I, where I climbed up on it and did the... There's a bit where you have to kind of lower yourself down with one foot out and you swing yourself around. And they didn't include it. I was thinking, I've managed to do this here. I was quite proud of myself. I don't do these interviews for content. I do it to show off. Well, you can keep that for your, your showreel for when you obviously enter a television career after you're, you're done with us at The Scotsman, Alex. <laughs> um, can I ask you, you were obviously speaking to um, the general public as well while you were doing your, your films and several Vox Pops. And I just wondered what you came away with after you week about where people are and what they were thinking about about the election? So obviously it's kind of a mixed bag. So we know we went to uh, Elgin in Murray, we went to Cooper, uh, Glasgow uh, and Edinburgh. And the mood generally, I mean, independence keeps coming up and it's incredibly, people are very angry and it's incredibly divisive. No one is like, you know, oh, I'm not sure. I think there are a couple of those, but generally people were very, very angry. Um, and really engaged, which, you know, when you're trying to get a Vox Pop is not necessarily always the case. You know, we spoke to people uh, in Leith who, you know, were traditional Labour voters who I would have thought perhaps under an ass might be willing to return to the Scottish Labour Party. But they would cite independence as a factor. But also, they don't like Westminster now and they don't trust Keir Starmer either. What's your view on how... Scottish people are reacting to Keir Starmer. It's one of the questions that of this election is how much campaigning he should be doing up here, given uh, Anasawa's uh, relatively new um, 
placement as Scottish Scottish Labour leader. What, what's your what's your take? So I know Sakir has come up a couple of times, but he did he does come up with, with people on the street. You know, you, they say I used to be a Labour voter. SNP now represent me, and you'd say, okay, what about you know what is it about Labour you don't like? And they might go, well, I do like an ass, but Sakir doesn't represent me. He's a Blairite. He's a centrist. Both things are obviously palpably ridiculous. Um, I mean, he's by any, he's, left, he's more left wing than Ed Miliband. Uh, it's just because Corbyn came before him. But people people still seem to associate the Scottish Labour Party with uh, Tony Blair, uh, and that seems to be hindering them. I mean, it, it's it's really really absurd. Uh, and then you'd speak to people who maybe were more SNP, and they'd say, "I'm both 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 SNP. I want a socially just country." Uh, and I think that it's great what they're doing, you know, on education and for children's welfare. And you'd say, okay, but they have been in power for 14 years. And they go, oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> Just the idea that everything is going to get better with the SNP. And the fact it might not have done yet doesn't mean it's not going to happen eventually. So that, that, that sounds to me as if the SNP message of we need independence to do our job properly is actually cutting through in a way that maybe we as you know, the the political class and and folk kind of assume that people can see through? I mean, quite possibly. I mean, when I spoke to Paul Sweeney, the way he articulated it was he said that the, the Scottish government were governing with one hand tied behind their back, deliberately talking things down to try and drum up support for themselves and independence, which obviously is quite a strong accusation. But that does a bit, it's a message that I think cuts mm. through. The idea that they are limited uh, by Westminster. I mean, people would bring up the power grab of the um, Internal Market Bill, which you know may does give you know Westminster powers in Scotland, but it's to invest. It's not you know to take control off of Scotland. It's to it's additional funding. Uh, but people were very very angry. And and what I would say was interesting is the people who would vote who were perhaps voting for the Scottish Conservatives didn't want to say it on camera. You know, more than two people said, uh, you know, one said that she was worried she'd have a brick thrown through her window, which is obviously, you know, silly. Um, but another one was just just scared to say it. You know, it's the shy Tories, which suggests that even though the polls are not looking particularly good for Scottish Conservatives at the moment, maybe maybe there is that support that people are just too afraid to say. That shy Tory thing has been happening for a long time not just in Scotland but I would say particularly in Scotland you know this idea that Scotland has no Tories is ridiculous and you know this the creation of the Scottish Parliament uh, has actually shown that I mean they're now the second largest party they're the main opposition and yet people are still disinclined to tell pollsters or even random Scotsman journalists doing vox pops that, that they're going to vote for them I mean, you say it's ridiculous that somebody thinks they're going to get a brick through their window, but, it's, you know, it depends on which part of the country you're in when you say that and how heightened the tensions are around around these issues. Because if you speak to people who were campaigning on the vote no side, for instance, in 2014, they would tell you that they that was very much a fear and it wasn't this great joyous occasion that um, people on the yes side felt it was, you know, and that's understandable, I think, you know, if you're if you're campaigning for no, it's very difficult to for that to sound like a joyous <laughs> thing. Um, so yeah, <laughs> I, I, it doesn't surprise me that people would would say that to you, Alex. And I also 
don't think it's surprising that somebody like Paul Sweeney would talk about it in the terms he has, because I think you've, what you're seeing there is the frustration of the opposition parties, um, that absolutely nothing is cutting through the SNP's popularity. Yeah. You know, they have been in power for 14 years. And yet, you know, most gov- most governments who've been in power for that length of time, people are starting to get a bit fed up with them, you know, and a, and a bit more, it's time for something new, it's time for a fresh face, and that is just doesn't appear to be happening at all. So you can imagine that, that how frustrated they are by that. I asked Anas about this, and I asked and, and others as well, you know, why, if, you know, if the, if the SNP have been a poor government, why is their polling continue to be so high? And the answer it doesn't really hold weight. I mean, you know, his suggestion was, oh, there's not been good enough opposition to hold them to, to hold them to account. So, you know, Labour will be a better opposition, and then we will pull them towards the right things and show how they're bad. But it's not like people haven't been reporting on things that are maybe been mistakes by the Scottish government. Um, you know, the first minister said they dropped the ball on on drugs, and I don't haven't seen any suggestion after that that people will not be <laughs> will not be voting SNP. It's just so difficult. And, I, and others would say to me, I think it's the pureness of the message, right? Because everything, you know, everyone has been a unionist and had their associations with the Westminster parties. But if you're the SNP, you've got this one big appeal, all encompassing, and then everything else is a bonus. It's like, I want independence, but also I agree on this policy here or I agree on this policy here. So I do think it's, it's easier for them to campaign and make that pitch. Uh, and that's also seems to be what people would say on the ground. You know, you'd speak to people on the street and they would go, they would say it is two four things. It is domestic and it is independent. Yeah. It's perhaps telling then, isn't it, that the biggest problem that the SNP have this election is a dissatisfied minority of their support, which wants kind of what the SNP stand for first and foremost, independence. They want that faster. And also... You know, in 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 Alex Salmond's Alba Party, you've got that very you know strange coalition of voters of pro independence and anti gender reform, anti self ID. The fact that that little section of the SNP has hived itself off into this new party, um, I wonder, Alex, did did that come up much on the street? How did people bring up Alba and Alex Salmond, and how much do you think the SNP? still has the ground the kind of populist middle ground for independence do you think they still hold on to that the only man the only man who told me he was voting alba said that he was doing it because their name was more scottish (laughs) (laughs) right and when i said you know what about alex salmond and his uh reputation he said doesn't matter you know it's about what we represent and the name is more scottish he doubled down it's more Scottish than Scottish. Wow. But what I would say is you would actually speak to some people who were already voting SNP who were quite relieved by the existence of Alba because it is attracting some of the more toxic elements of the independence movement. Um, because, you know, like all big movements, so that's, that's absolutely no slur on the idea of independence. It's like, all, you know, there's always going to be a fringe. Uh, and Albert is appears, you know, my may be attracting them. So it's like a bit of a clear out in the same, you know, when a party gets so big, there are always going to be elements you might want to get rid of. Um, and when it's such a broad church, perhaps some of them don't fit there. Some people said, you know, it's good. 
It might lose a bit of support, but it's going to make the SNP a better and more progressive party in the long run. Um, which I think is a view also held by several MPs. I was going to say, did Angus Robertson provide a view on on that and that specifically of of it driving out the more hardline fringes? No, he's talked more about uh, his views on Boris Johnson rather than uh, Alba. And he said, you know, how he's on the SNP wing of the SNP party. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'd asked him. I'd asked him about you know because we were walking the dogs. I'd asked him if he was ready to lead. Yeah, good one. Um, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Going back to Nicola Sturgeon, I'm intrigued again. Obviously, if independence is coming up, I'm assuming that COVID nineteen and the and the pandemic has come up as well with people you've spoken to. How much has Nicola Sturgeon's leadership driven how people are voting? Was anyone mentioning that as a as a driving motivation? Oh, that was, I mean, that's a very good question. That was one of the big, one of the biggest things that came up. People love calling her Nikki. <laughs> Just, oh, I love Nikki. Oh, Nikki's been so good. Nikki. Nikki's done this. I don't like, oh, even people who don't follow politics were like, oh, I just think Nikki's been so great, you know. With the social distancing and stuff. And I was like, okay, okay any, what specifically? Oh, just Nikki. I just really like her. She represents Scotland. Yeah. I just think that she's, because she's a good communicator and she's personable, that's enough. In the same way, I, you know, during the UK general election campaign, people go, you know, I like Boris, he's going to get Brexit yeah. done. I think you're right, Alex. I think that, and it goes back to the question um, that, or the discussion we were having slightly earlier about policy and after 14 years, how none of it's cutting through, you know, the things that they haven't achieved or, or been successful on or their domestic record. And mm. I do think... Yeah, for a lot of people, it doesn't matter because they're Nicola Sturgeon fans. It's not even it's not even about independence, yeah. although they're maybe warmer to that now than they were before because they like Nicola Sturgeon. You know, it's that it is all about her, I think, for a lot of people. And it it just goes to show how clever she has been or her, her advisors have been having her front and centre of the COVID response every day for the last year. I mean, she has been everywhere you know so whether or not you agree necessarily with everything being great around covid and of course she would say it wasn't and you only have to look at the number of deaths and the situation with the care homes to to realize that but actually none of it sticks because people go oh well at least she's there she's taking responsibility you know she's she's doing her job unlike Boris, who's not to be seen or not, you know, um, or who faffs about when he's on, on screen in front of the camera. You know, it's just that that difference between their leadership styles, their empathetic language. You know, Nicola Sturgeon's all about, well, we're all in this together. It's all about, you know, creating that kind of bond between her and the public, the way she, the language that she uses. Boris Johnson's is, is very different to that. And I think, you know, that is all now coming home for for the SNP in this election and I think a lot of people are voting for Nicola Sturgeon really rather than anything else absolutely you talk to people and it's kind of like the answer is like Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds it's Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP uh one you know leads to the other uh, her brand recognition and just the the way that people associate her directly with the Covid response but I think part of that also comes from her ability to criticize Westminster and then, you know, any slight flaws can then be blamed on them. It does slightly absolve her and the SN and Scottish government 
um, of response. I mean, the care home stuff is very, very bad. Um, but I would, I would be fascinated to see any polling after after that and see if it's cha- changed anyone's mind about voting SNP. Whereas, you know, let's say when Margaret Ferrier, um, did, you know, did her COVID breach, um, her, <laughs> which was almost as long as my tour of Scotland, um, you know, first minister comes out has a press conference, gets asked about it repeatedly, and it's very clear immediately it's not good enough. Uh, and, you know, she she's, won't stand for it. Dominic Cummings, Boris Johnson doesn't. And, and being seen to act, being seen to act is so important. Um, whereas, you know, the UK government will send out junior ministers rather than, you know, Gavin Williamson for difficult, question, difficult urgent questions in the Commons, whereas Nicola Sturgeon is up every single day. She looks accountable. She looks like she's dealing with it because she's always there working, and that's what the public see. It's a very, it's a very interesting point, that actually, because I think you're right. I think, I think that vision or that 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 ability to be seen to be questioned on your failings, which, to be fair to Nicola Sturgeon, she has been, and she's been very. She's probably put herself up for more questioning by the press, for example, than I think any other leader that i can think of over the last over the last year in in the uk even even if the press get get pelters for the questions we sometimes ask it clearly shows that she's willing to take criticism and and answer questions on on, on these issues i just wanted to ask about douglas ross um, he's had difficult campaign um i think to say the least he, his, his debate performances were have not been great um, Ruth Davidson seems to be on a joint ticket with Douglas, despite the fact that she's off to the House of Lords. Um, what what were people's responses to him? I'm particularly interested to know what about what the quiet Tories that you mentioned earlier thought about Douglas and whether or not he was the sort of person that they could, you know, really back and rally behind. Well, I mean, the quiet Tories were very happy with Douglas, but uh, you know, I just I think if you're if you're if you're if you're a Tory voter, who's always been a Tory voter, if there's a brick with a blue rosette on it, you'll vote for it, which which isn't like you know criticism of Douglas. I just think they were conservative first rather mm. than particularly fans of Douglas. No no one brought up Douglas Ross as a reason why they'd be voting for him. Just he was there. Whereas the reaction from people not voting for the Conservatives was surprisingly aggressive. Actually, um, you know there's probably bits of footage that we just can't use um, because people had very, very strong views. Even my, you know, I had, had a taxi driver who was very critical and said, you know, he doesn't represent the area. I don't like his behavior. And that wasn't an isolated incident. It was, which is really odd because, you know, story-wise, he is, you know, he's been an MSP, he's been an MP, he's running to be an MSP again, and he's from the area. His family live in the area. He's, you know, got children, he's married in the area. You know, this is like a a local boy dead to you know. The, the one narrative could be dedicated to public service, but instead it's you know three jobs. Ross, um, how can he do it? How dare he? Even though you know he said that the money from the second job will all be given to charity or um, you know, uh, in a good way. So the the reaction was really quite interesting. It has been difficult for him, but again, I don't think it's it's not it's not necessarily his fault. Because you only have to watch the debates to hear some of the, so much of the criticism might not be about him. It might it's often about Westminster, uh, and even things such as his you know 
admittedly horrible remarks about the traveling community, he has apologized for those so many times and said, you know, I think he said uh, last year or earlier this year, you know, it was one of his greatest regrets of saying that and he was wrong and, you know, he didn't feel happy about it and he wanted to, you know, make it gotten better for everyone. But it still gets shared and shared and shared and thrown back at him. That kind of feeds into this idea that, well, you know, is a wicked Tory, so therefore that's what you'd expect a wicked Tory to say. It doesn't matter if he apologises, it's not true. Whereas, you know, if Nicola Sturgeon apologises for something that's happened, it's absolutely accepted, oh, well, that's fine, and we move on. You know, and it, it, that there's a real kind of unlevel playing field there, I think, for, for Douglas Ross, which must be quite difficult for him. And I also think the criticism of having Ruth Davidson around in the campaign is is crazy because, I mean, she's been a very successful uh, leader for them in Scotland. You know, she, she took the party to second place in Holyrood. Why would you not use Ruth Davidson in your campaigning? You know, people like her. If they don't like Douglas Ross for whatever reason, or they, they don't even think about Douglas Ross in a sense, they definitely, you know, if you're a Conservative voter or you're a unionist on that side, they kind of do like Ruth Davidson. So, of course, you're going to use her. And, I mean, that, that would be like saying that whenever, you know, Nicola Sturgeon hands over to whoever comes next, that she wouldn't campaign with them, you know, um, because, oh, well, that means that, you know, you're you're obviously Nicola Sturgeon's still in charge or she's still pulling the strings rather than whoever it might be, Kate Forbes or whoever, you know, comes next. And why would Kate Forbes not want Nicola Sturgeon to help her campaign? You know, of course she would. I, I, I find that discussion around Ruth Davidson very peculiar. My mind now wanders to the to the image of uh, <laughs> Boris Johnson trying to campaign, perhaps joined by Theresa May, who, of course, he uh, ousted, or, or David Cameron. Uh, not quite as good relationships with the predecessors in the Conservative Party uh, in Westminster. Did you speak to any Labour or Lib Dem floating voters who were considering voting for the Scottish Tories due to their kind of very clear and straightforward message on, on independence? No, not really. I mean, the people who were most pro-union actually <laughs> said they were voting Lib Dem, which really surprised me. Um, but I suppose domestically, if, you, if you're a unionist and you're on the centre or the left, which is, you know, a large amount of Scotland, the Scottish Conservatives probably aren't the party for you. They're, I mean, they're considerably more left-wing than their Westminster counterparts. But unionism as one, I think, you know, if you want independence, that's enough of a reason to vote for the SNP. But if you want unionism, that's not enough of a reason to vote for the Conservatives, because there's so many other things that you might have interest in. You know, for if, you, you know if, you're a, if you are an independent supporter, independence can lead to a more socially just country, and it can give us power to this and power to that, and deliver on the other policies I want. Whereas, you know, it's more vote unionism, vote Tory to stop independence which is a clear message, but doesn't necessarily feed into other things that will appeal to voters. But I mean, that, that's, a, that's a problem for all the other parties. Absolutely. I was going to say, it's, a, it's, a, it's an issue that Scottish Labour have. It's an issue that, that the Dems have as well of, of persuading people to vote for a negative. Yeah. Which is always difficult. And, and the, the videos are fantastic, Alex, and uh, hopefully everyone who, who's listening will go will head over to the Scotsman website and to Twitter and, and have a proper watch. Fingers crossed.
So thank you very much to our Westminster correspondent, Alex Brown, of taking us through his experience of being on the Holly Road, which are already on the Scotsman website. Gina, we're going to move on to discuss the manifestos as we speak. We've had, we've seen three. We've seen the Scottish Lib Dems, the Scottish Greens, and the SNPs. The Scottish Conservatives is out today, but being Monday, um, we've not seen it at the time of recording. And Scottish Labour's is out next Thursday. I think, given the fact that there's only one party that seems to want to govern Scotland after this election, based on the debates and no one saying that they're going to be first minister other than Nicola Sturgeon. It might be worth us having a look at the SNP's manifesto first. What's your takeaway from this? There's been criticism that it's wildly ambitious, over-ambitious and possible to fund that the, the I think Scottish Tories said there was something like £93 billion um, of, of, of promises in it. Um, and obviously you've got the other side of the coin with, with independence and, and various campaigners believing it doesn't go fast enough on that. What was the standout for you? The standout for me was this, not surprisingly, I think, was this sudden decision to abolish dentistry charges, NHS dentistry Mm. charges. And I think, you know, that was a a real headline grabber of an announcement, as they knew it would be. I mean, some of the things that were in there had obviously been trailed, you know, previously. Um, This one hadn't made hadn't made an appearance at all so it was a real kind of like oh right mic drop moment for Nicola Sturgeon and we'll pay your dentist bills so you know (laughs) (laughs) and I think you know there's there's a a good argument for having free dentistry or lifting charges um for people on on low income uh people who are in receipt of universal credit and so on but you get into this the weeds of it all and and it's in this it's the same kind of arguments around should we really have free prescriptions for everybody? Does everybody really need to have a mm. free prescription? Because, you know, there are plenty of people in, in Scotland earning enough to pay for their prescription should they need it. Now, that's, not, again, not people who are on low incomes or or who have chronic illness, maybe, you know, and so on. So I think this will be one of those issues that um, really starts to have a lot of questions asked about it, uh, as much as it's a great headline announcement. And I also wonder what the detail is in terms of just what charges are going to be covered. Um, you know, are we talking just checkups? Are we talking treatment? You know, what sort of treatment? Is it just a filling? Is it a metal filling? Or will you get a white filling on the NHS? Will there be any orthodontistry included in that if you need a brace? Or, you know, I think all of these things will come out over the course of time. But in terms of a manifesto launch and a big announcement, you know, that was the real headline grabber. And, um, you know, and who, who, which voter is going to say, oh, I don't, I don't fancy that, you know. So it will, but it will be the detail as in all these things. And I'm right in thinking that I think checkups, free checkups, um, in dentistry have been free for a while for certain people. Um, I think a, a standard examination has been free in Scotland for a few years. But you're right. I think it's it's that classic thing of um, what actually will be free? Yes. And on top of that, how long will it take to come into force? Because I think in potentially a little bit of a missed, missed aspect of this is that they'll phase it in over five years. Um, include, And I think they're starting with a very small group of people to begin with. It's a, it's really not a, 
a big a big shift and um it's suggested that it'll cost them about 75 million pound annually now you can assume of course that with barnet consequentials that over time the budget will potentially be there assuming that boris johnson and the westminster government continue to spend their money um in the way that they have done over the last few years but in a post-covid world where we might be seeing a return to austerity from from westminster that will naturally be passed on up here in the way it has been since 2010 and that policy decision might might be um slightly more difficult um but it's it's quite clear to me i don't know about you gina but it's clear to me that they the smp have got quite a firm stance on the nhs now which is we are going to try and make as much of it as possible free and with this establishment of a national care service of some sort however that looks we're going to expand that yeah. further and further the longer we're in power. I think um, what's absolutely fascinating about the SNP's um, announcements around health is, a, is the idea that they've absolutely, completely, firmly parked their tanks on the lawn of Labour. Uh, you know, absolutely. I mean, to reference Nye Bevan and his resignation, you know, from the government over dentistry charges being put in place in the first instance, you know, back when the NHS was first created, um is something that um, you know have had a lot of labour people absolutely raging, you know. So it, it was done very cleverly, yeah. And I think the NHS is is going to be a real uh, battleground over the next five years, and, and how and how these kind of promises are going to be paid for. Because as you say, um, it's it's unlikely, given that we have a, a West Westminster government which is led by Boris Johnson and, and uh, Rishi Sunak as Chancellor, that this spending, as we've had, is going to continue. But I tell you what was also interesting was the report that was out last week around the spending on health under devolution um, and showing that when part you know when it was devolved uh, back in ninety nine, it was twenty two percent. There was a gap of health spending, which was 22% higher in Scotland than it was down south. And now that gap is only 3%. So, you know, it could be argued that actually health spending hasn't remained at the same heights as it, as it had initially when uh, when Holyrood was, uh, was first created. So that's quite interesting. And that gap might increase, obviously, over what's been promised by Nicola Sturgeon around dentistry and around social care. Um, but yeah, it, like all of these things, it's like, you know, just what will be free and what, you know, how will you qualify? And, you know, making these big announcements, you'll have people going to the dentist now that, now that appointments are back up and running saying, but I don't I don't have to pay for this anymore. And it'll be up to the dentist to say, no, actually, you still do, because that's not happened, you know. And the British Dental Association have, you know, they haven't, there's been no discussion with them yet about how this is going to work. So they'll be obviously keen to make sure that this doesn't mean a, some kind of reduced funding in some way to, to dentists to pay for the free stuff. So it'll be interesting to see how that all falls out. And uh, and then, of course, there was, there's, there's all the free childcare that has been promised, wrap, you know, in the mornings and after school and bringing in one and two year old children into that um, early learning idea, which you know, has been put forward by the SNP as a way to get people back into work if there's childcare there for them. But at the same time, I don't wonder if what we need to see is some kind of revolution that says, actually, you know, we will 
allow we'll pay you to stay at home and bring up your child for the first two years you don't have to go back to work you know there has to be you know you can if you want and the childcare will be there but if you'd rather stay at home with your children you know then there'll be money there available or support there available for you to do that as well and um you know that kind of thing happens in australia i believe you know in the public service uh, sector anyway and people are able to stay at home and still receive you know their salary and so on for a much longer period of time than they, than they do here and i think for me that would have been much more radical and groundbreaking than just saying you know, you can you can offload your child into a nursery at the age of one, which just feels, you know, a lot of people have to do it, absolutely, because you get a year's maternity if you're lucky and then you have to go back to work and there has to be some kind of childcare. So, you know, but I think, well, maybe take that pressure off parents, be it the mother or the father or whoever, you know, and maybe let them stay at home for longer. That would have been a much more interesting way to, to, to go about that, I think. And, uh, and then, of course, we have the free bikes for children as well, which sounds grand, and again, I think, well, who, who's going to qualify for that? And, you know, where will the lines be drawn? And how expensive will the bikes be? <laughs> <laughs> for some children that want a particular brand. So, yeah. <laughs> I think it's interesting that, that I, I, I actually have, um, I think there's, a, there's arguments being put forward by the opposition parties in relation to the SNP manifesto and a lot of their campaign promises, which is, you know, why, why haven't you done this mm. already? And I think there's quite a significant bit of merit to that. I think one of theirs, one of their campaign promises is, I think, giving a is it electronic device or a laptop to every every school child. Um, you're thinking we've just had a year and a half of almost pretty much at home schooling, bar you know little gaps. Why 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 wasn't that put in place in you know June July of last year ahead of ahead of the new school year? I think there's significant merit in that. But if we move on from their kind of domestic um, point of view, I think it's worth mentioning what Alba came out with at the weekend in terms of post-independence views, because it's not a shock, but they came out and said that their view is that EFTA is the way forward um, uh, in terms of uh, trading with Europe, and that's significantly diverging from the SNP view of a return to the EU. Um, We also had Alex Salmond, the... Uh, proponent of the we'll share a currency with um, the UK going, oh, no, now we definitely need one, um, as his conversion to the um, fringe wing of the of the all the SNP continues. Um, it's interesting to see that argument playing out as well. We also had um, Alba Party who suggested their po- campaign would be completely positive, calling the Greens' commitment to independence at the weekend, um, I think, as... I can't remember quite the word, but it was something along the lines of, you know, their commitment is as clear as dishwater, um, i.e. they don't really care. So all of this is happening in the background of this these domestic policies that the SNP have put through. Um, how do you think the SNP are going to square the circle of potentially having to work with Alba in the post-election Holyrood when they are clearly at the minute completely disagreed um on key policies about the future of scotland post-independence well how are they going to square that circle it you know nicola Sturgeon has been very clear so far that she will not work with alba um she has absolutely no desire to be reliant on any support from any msps that, that might get elected which actually 
you know, despite what Alba are, are saying about the Scottish Greens, gives gives the Greens a, a whip hand, you know, depending on how many MSPs that they return. You know, the minority SNP government that we've had for the last five years has been very dependent on them to get their budgets through. I don't see that changing. Um, obviously, the polls are suggesting that the SNP will have a majority in their own right this time. So if that continues uh, to be the case, then they don't need to rely on anybody. And, you know, they can just, they know that they'll have Alba there nipping at their, their heels constantly, but they, they can ignore them if that's the case. Um, what the SNP will be hoping for is obviously an outright majority. And if they don't get it, that the Greens do enough to make sure that they don't have to to deal with Alba in any sense. Um, but you're right, their, their manifesto around Europe certainly wasn't a surprise. Um, especially if you've got someone like Alex Neil, you know, encouraging SNP supporters to vote for them on, on, their, on the list, um, who, as we know, voted uh, to leave during the, the Brexit referendum mm-hmm. campaign, who's one of the, the few SNP uh, elected politicians that put their heads above the parapet and said, you know, that they had done so. So th- there's a, and I tell you what's interesting is this other uh, party that's that started Restore Scotland, which is another pro-independence party, but also anti-EU. Uh, I don't think they're against the European Union, they just don't want to be in it, you know? So they believe mm-hmm. that independence is independence from both the UK and from Europe. And it looks like Alba's going down that road as well but it's obviously quite keen on on trade so you know they're not stupid in the sense that they don't want to cut off all their economic ties so uh so EFTA is their answer and you're right that's that's no surprise but it's not where the SNP is at the moment um in terms of Europe but you know if you if you listen to Nicola Sturgeon, she's already said a, a new economic case is going to have to be made for independence. So it wouldn't surprise me in the slightest if there's also a new case around Europe and what um, where they think they might end up ultimately, at least if they were to win independence in the immediate aftermath and then possibly the EU is way further down the road, you know, gives them time to... to uh, to, to, to win people round to the idea and maybe take some people back, some voters back from Alba if they, they can produce that. But um but yeah, I, I, I think it's what's quite fascinating is that the Alba party will definitely have the SNP rethinking a lot of uh, of their policies around independence and Europe. It'd be really interesting to see how that translates into votes. But I think you're right. I think when it comes to, to Europe, I think recalling 2014 and the argument around that, you know, there were two main you know, sticks to hit the SNP and the pro-independence campaign with. One was currency, which they never got round. And I don't think they'll ever get a significant, you know, response or, or, or solution to that until we they end up going to independence and they, they solve that. I think that's always going to be a stick. The other was how they rejoined the EU. I think you're right. I think going, you know, we'll rejoin EFTA, which solves the border problem mm-hmm. first and foremost. And then we'll look at rejoining the EU in five, ten years. Um, I think is a logical move for the SNP to arguably look more um, look more careful when it comes to independence and have their economic case on a surer footing post-independence. Um, that's not to say that EFTA is the perfect solution um, to, to any economic struggles that, that an independent Scotland may or may not have, but it's certainly a way to relieve the argument of how the hell do you join the EU 
post-independence, especially post-Brexit. As mentioned, we've got Labour coming in late, later this week. It's their second time they've delayed um, their manifesto launch, to be fair to them. The first one was due to the death of the Duke of Edinburgh, um, which they, they were due to launch on that Monday. And I believe they were planning on doing it tomorrow or the day that this podcast comes out on Tuesday. Um, and that's been delayed due to the COVID announcement. Um, and the Scottish Tories are today. What do you think, Gina, these two manifestos need to have in them given that both parties are claiming that they're going to be the best opposition and they're not trying to get not not pretending that they've got a chance of governing um what do these manifestos need in them to make shift any votes i don't know if they will shift any votes it doesn't i don't think it matters in many respects what they promise i think interestingly labor are not going to produce a normal type of manifesto, I think, and Asawa has been clear that this is a, a recovery manifesto, as he puts it. Um, so it might not be as um, detailed as, as you would get normally uh, in terms of the number of policies that, that would be in there. The Conservatives, you know, do have some new policies. They've, they've already trailed some of them, you know, in terms of their job recovery and apprenticeships and you know more uh, more teachers in schools and so on and so forth and also they have a, a new childcare wraparound um idea as well um but you know nobody's really looking i think to the conservatives for anything other than we will not support a second independence referendum and that's because whether they like it or not that's what they've been fighting on and they have been fighting on since 2014 really so um so i don't think there's room for people to discuss you know what Tory policies are because that's that's kind of all the, all they stand for in a lot of people's minds, um, and for some people that's enough. <laughs> you know they don't they don't care because that's for them that's their number one priority. Labour, on the other hand, ha- have a problem because their um, their whole idea about being a, the opposition, the main opposition, is to make sure the SNP keep their promises and to push them left as they would see it. You know to 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 make sure they're helping. Uh, the poorest in in Scotland first and yet the SNP manifesto last week is is such it's chock full of giveaways and support for you know those on the lowest incomes those on receipt of um, benefit and so on that actually for Labour to kind of out left flank that is going to be very difficult so I I'd be very surprised if they even attempt to do that now and I think it'll be you know, the Conservatives are already started picking holes in the costings of the SNP manifesto, as you said. You know, they've said it's going to be, they're going to need to raise 95 billion, you know, that which is way more than double the current budget for the Scottish uh, government if they're going to meet all these promises. Labour might not go in the costings because it's not always been the best ground for them. But I think it'll be more about the detail as we were talking about earlier. It's like really who's going to benefit. And you're setting up a national care service, which we said needed to be done so you've taken our policy but how are you going to implement it and will it be as good as the one that we have said that needs to be done and that the trade unions want to see and you know and so on and so forth so I think their their um, arguments will be around the implementation of these policies rather than trying to do anything that's more radical or that's going to spit, cost more money um, than, than the SNP did last week. And Anna Sara has a difficult balancing job of keeping those who put him where he is on side as well, which was clearly not the 
trade union politics of Richard Leonard um, and of, of allies of, of, of Richard, such as, you know, Neil Findlay, etc. Annis is a is a different type of left wing politician from from those guys who came before him in, 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 in Richard and also in the old Labour leader down south in Jeremy Corbyn. So be a fascinating thing to, to see. I, I, I can see it being firmly recovery based and potentially not much else out with the COVID-19 pandemic, which, do you know what, if if Labour need a refresh, maybe a, a, a manifesto which doesn't promise much is the way forward um, for them and they can rebuild in time for what, you know, unionists hope will be another Scottish parliamentary election rather than a um, a fresh Scottish independent parliamentary election in 2026. Um, but having said all of that, postal votes have gone out and they went out last week. Um, I have voted myself already. Oh, you'll never keep me away from the polling booth. Uh, never. <laughs> <laughs> I love that experience. Wanted to just cross cross it off and make sure that I'd done it, you know, just in case um, I get COVID close to the day. But they're all out. Um, I believe if people are listening to this today, they'll have missed the chance to register to vote in this election. But if you've got your postal votes in your hands, they should have come out last week um, and through into this week. Make sure they get sent um, in time to to arrive on the 6th of May and make sure to read those manifestos in full so you get a full idea of what these parties are offering you. Uh, Gina, thank you as always um, and uh, we'll speak next week after which we'll have had our next batch of polling ahead of May the 6th and we'll maybe see if there's any surprises in there. Excellent, look forward to it. Speak then, Connor. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman.